0: This is exactly right. But she might have many, many other strengths you haven't noticed or haven't gone to the trouble of noticing. And also you have to respect that she might want to be raising her children differently than you raised yours. And you also have to realize, and I think this is probably the hardest thing, that you're not number one anymore. That your son should be putting his wife first.
1: Welcome to Parent Footprint with Dr. Dan. I'm Dr. Dan. This show is about making the world a more loving, accepting, and compassionate place, one parent, one person, and one child at a time. The key to raising healthy and engaged kids is for us parents to seek the same in our own lives while striving to be the best versions of ourselves each day. No matter who you are or where you came from, with increased awareness, you can be purposeful about leaving a healthy footprint for your children, your family, and all those you care about while living your own life to the fullest. Today's show is Mother's-in-Law and Daughter's-in-Law with Sally Koslow. Sally is the author of her brand new novel, which we'll be talking about today, The Real Mrs. Tobias, as well as the novels Another Side of Paradise, the international bestseller The Late Lamented Molly Marks, The Widow Waltz," With Friends Like These, and Little Pink Slips. She is also the author of one work of nonfiction, which I am so intrigued with, Slouching Toward Adulthood, How to Let Go So Your Kids Can Grow Up a common conversation these days. Her books have been published in a dozen countries. Sally is the former editor-in-chief of Iconic McCall's Magazine. She has taught creative writing at the Writing Institute at Sarah Lawrence College and the JCC of Manhattan, as well as in private workshops, and has contributed essays and articles to the New York Times, O, Real Simple, and many, many other magazines, newspapers, websites, and numerous anthologies. Sally lives in Manhattan, but hopes the statute of limitations never ends on mentioning that she is from Fargo, North Dakota. She's a graduate of the University of Wisconsin Madison, where she met her husband, and they live in Manhattan and are the proud parents of two sons. Sally, welcome to the show.
0: Dan, it's nice to be here. Thank you.
1: So, in preparation for diving into your latest piece of work, tell us your road to becoming an author and a writer
0: well i always was kind of an idiot savant i wasn't particularly talented in any realm of music or athletics and somebody always did like to write and it was something that my parents encouraged and by the time i got to high school my english teachers encouraged uh tremendously and you know i'm a real cliche the editor of the high school newspaper and so on and when i um i I went, as you mentioned, to the University of Wisconsin, and it was a hotbed of student protest at the time. And I was involved, I had my share of tear gas in my eyes and so on, but I secretly wrote a resume (laughs) and went to New York in the fall to see if I could get a job on a magazine. And uh, because I was this dumb Midwesterner, I applied at all the best magazines. I think if I'd grown up around New York, I would have known more and been way too intimidated. Mm-hmm. So I, I, um, I got actually an offer at the time at Harper's Bazaar, but it meant that I wouldn't have literally graduated from college, you know, with a cap and gown and the last, so I, I I, couldn't figure out how to do that, move to New York sooner. So I passed up that opportunity, but then I went, I took the obligatory trip to Europe, which people mm-hmm. used to do way back then on yep. Arthur Fromer Book and Toe. Europe on $5 a day, which, you know, today wouldn't even buy you a French fry, but um, uh, when I came home, I I got a job at Mademoiselle Magazine, which doesn't exist anymore, but it was a very sophisticated magazine for women in their 20s, and it was owned by Condé Nast, which was the glamorous corporation, but as I said, you know, I was so naive, I didn't think that there was any reason they wouldn't hire a girl from Fargo, North Dakota. So uh, people didn't expect to have a big, big job immediately back in those days. And I actually hung out there for about six years writing articles like on how not to like careers in cooking or profiles of college campuses like Texas A&M, where they sent me. And I one of the cadets squired me around and taught me the Texas two-step. I mean, it was it was kind of really old fashioned. I was very underworked, but it was very pleasant. Um, and I went on in the field of magazines and then I had a baby and, um, I decided to try to start freelancing mm. and I, I wrote, um, always nonfiction. I wrote articles, my beat became, um, often it was sex. Like I, I, I wrote a lot for the ladies home journal. It was pieces like unconsummated marriage or loveless mm. marriage. <laughs> um, uh, and then, um, this, the, the, the baby Wh- became... What year
1: are we talking right there? Just set the oh, stage of okay. that so, and, with, and with your first baby.
0: So he was he's 45 years old now. Okay. Um, so uh,
1: Mid-70s. Yeah, yeah. He was
0: born in 1977. So we're, yep. we're getting to the 80s now at the beginning okay. of the eighties. And, and then I, I, um, I went back to... Um, a, someone offered me a job, just kind of... It was, And I forgot how much I really liked working on a magazine. And the editor of the – so I worked on a small magazine and um, had another baby. And the editor of that small magazine became the editor of um, a magazine called Woman's Day, one of the big iconic women's magazines. And she was looking around for uh, a top editor. And I said to her kind of brazenly, I said, well, you could hire this one or that one she's not going to find anyone better than me, nice. and so um, she she hired me, and it and it worked out really well. And uh, but again, I slowly rose in the ranks, and I eventually became the editor in chief of McCall's magazine, which was uh, huge, one of
2: the tremendous huge.
0: magazines, yeah. with, with um, you know millions and millions of readers, and it really was a dream job for me. I just loved it, um, and then my McCalls, I'm going to skip. My calls actually got taken over and turned into a magazine for Rosie O'Donnell. So I, I'm not making this up. You know, this really—I <laughs> did not like know this. Okay. And Rosie thought, hmm, "I like a magazine." So um, I did not think that was such a swell idea because Oprah, you could trip any woman in the United States and she at the time would have been able to articulate what Oprah stood for. Probably you could even today that, you know, self-improvement and so on. Rosie's was another can of worms because you know she liked crafts and she liked Tom Cruise. You know, she was this sort of mishmash of interesting um, insights and also a much more tart personality. So hmm, that didn't turn out too well. So I was picked upstairs and eventually out. Um, but then I got hired to start a magazine, and that was wow. turned out a dream job. It was you know like Judy Garland and Mickey Rooney, you know, making a magazine in the garage. I was um, I was asked to create a magazine that personified Lifetime Television. These were the this was um, this was around the time of nine eleven. So we mm. you know this is a long mm-hmm. time ago now. But at the time, this was before Netflix and Mm -hmm. HBO and Amazon Prime and so on. um, I mean, Amazon Video. And Lifetime really was tremendous. They really had a – I mean, they're still big, but they were huge then. Mm
2: -hmm. So
0: I did this wonderful magazine, and I rehired a lot of the people who'd gotten canned when McCall's turned into Rosie. And it was a really great experience. But most new magazines fail, and this one – was no different it just didn't get the number of advertisers the company hoped for it was owned by Hearst and Disney so i was out of a job and but i had a nice cushion of a big long severance and somebody said well while you're looking for a new job you should you know indulge one of your interests but i had no other interests i had raised two children by then the youngest was in college and um, I had worked like seven days a week and took tons of manuscripts home at night. And I just loved it. I was absolutely born to be a magazine editor in chief, worked with all these great, smart people. But I thought, oh, I do like to write. So I enrolled myself in a writing workshop.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: And uh, everyone else was writing nonfiction. But I asked the teacher if I could. And the first thing I turned in was a uh, it was about going to a Chanel sample sale. And mm-hmm. the class just loved it. So um, the teacher allowed me to write fiction. I had never written a word of fiction. Um, meanwhile, I, I, I looked less and less enthusiastically for a new job because it was during the time when celebrity magazines were raining and I just couldn't see myself having worked for so long on fairly serious material, writing it and then editing it to, to switch over to Kardashian worship. So um, I just didn't want a celebrity job. So um, I wound up with a manuscript, my manuscript, and I found an agent. My agent um, sold it at an auction um,
2: Mm.
0: right away. Mm -hmm. It was bought by an iconic editor in the industry, someone who back in the day had discovered Peyton Place, which your readers probably never heard of, but it was this I think it was like maybe the end of the 1950s and it was this, at the time, really provocative, hot book. So um, I was really excited. Um, I was being paid for something that I'd created out of my imagination. And I was looking forward to the lunch with the editor and then she died. Oh! (laughs) Died before we even had our lunch. So I went to her funeral at the very posh Frank Campbell Funeral Home here in Manhattan. And it was just teeming with the luminaries of the publishing industry, but I, I decided that she was kind of my, the angel on my shoulder. Your bridge. And, <laughs> and uh, that book was called little pink slips. And mm-hmm. I wrote about what I knew. I wrote a book about what it was like for an editor of a great big magazine that wasn't called McCall's, but was very much like McCall's. And what it was like for uh, the editor to get canned because a celebrity took over the magazine. So, um, the, the new editor, the editor who inherited this manuscript after this poor individual had died, this, this very fancy Jackie O kind of editor had died, said, I love it, but there's only one thing I would change that it's inconceivable that the editor of this big women's magazine is from Fargo, North Dakota. And I said, Well, that's the only thing that's purely <laughs> biographical.
1: True. It's true. It's
0: yeah, purely biographical, so I'm yeah. not changing that. So that became um, the start of my. Uh, uh, second second life as a uh writer of fiction, and all of my books and the real mrs. Tobias will be my sixth uh novel everyone except Slouching toward adulthood has been fiction, and i yes. decided i like making stuff up
1: nice with 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 uh, i with i sense hints of hints of truisms and hints of experiences and morphed, uh, relationships, which we're going to get into. A little um, bit. As a high, yeah. a
0: high school friend visited me in New York and brought me a t-shirt that said, be careful or I'll put you in my novel. <laughs> <laughs> That's, <laughs> good. That. That's
1: good. Yeah. So I'm curious, uh, two things, um, about your upbringing in Fargo. So first off is, you know first you said you were too dumb but then i know you then you said like naive and i see it more as like as that kind of protected from the intensity and the pressure of growing up in the big city and having all of that awareness how did that umbra- it seems like there's some brazenness or some unintentional brazenness that might have come from being raised in a completely different culture
0: well, as a magazine editor for mass market magazines geared to uh, the uh, regular American woman, it was a gift because I didn't have to try to, uh, try to imagine what it was like to live at the, you know, slightly above the poverty line um, and have to have two jobs to support the household. And I, I got it. These were people I'd gone to high school with or forget high school, you know, grade school with, I understood the reader of these magazines and I felt it was a real asset. Um, And I've always been a little bit of an outsider looking in, in New York. Uh, But I have lived here a really long time now. And Mm -hmm. I wound up marrying my college sweetheart who was not a native New York city guy, but he, he grew up in one of the suburbs. And his family was far more sophisticated than mine in some respects. But in, in other respects, I, I think when you grow up in the middle of nowhere, like I did, you don't think that you're the center of the universe. And I know my parents, for example, always really kept up with news beyond our front door.
2: Mm-hmm. You
0: know, they they subscribed. We always had Newsweek and Time magazine in the house, and they, they kept up. They were interested in world news, where I think there can sometimes be a tendency for New York City people to be little mm-hmm. mm-hmm.
2: Um,
0: so I, mm-hmm. I, I, I appreciated my background when I lived here. I, sir, I, I, remember being so shocked in New York first year I lived here, how, how New York was designed to make you want to buy stuff. You know, you'd walk past mm, these wheels yeah. and everything looked so fabulous. And it was all, you know, I mean, I quickly caught out. It was all engineering, marketing, but um you know it was it was it was an eye opening experience
1: what about the impact of so you talk and write a lot about um growing up jewish and there's growing up there's fargo growing up jewish yeah. in fargo um <laughs> i'm interested in that and then going to manhattan where there's many more jewish people
2: Yes. So what, what,
0: what, what,
1: well, when, what was when, the percentage of Jewish people in Fargo when you were there?
0: Well, when I was there at the peak of Fargo's Jewish community, at one point there were like 85 kids in our Sunday school.
2: But mm-hmm.
0: our parents programmed us to leave town. My parents really hoped that I would marry a Jewish boy.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: So, um, and the boys that were my, the seven other kids my age, uh, who were boys were like first cousins practically. I mean, they functioned <laughs> that way, even though they weren't literally cousins. Um,
2: mm-hmm.
0: You know, I was wasn't raised with my own cousins. They were pretty far away, so uh, we were all good friends. So um, I, I always felt very special being Jewish, I and mean, we were the minority. Now, and Nor in far-, far was quite a diverse community. Now it has a yeah. much smaller Jewish population because we all decamped. The, those mm-hmm. of my generation. But it has people of many, many other ethnicities um, that that it didn't have when I was a kid. So it's a much smaller Jewish population. But when I went off to college, so my parents decided I should go to the University of Wisconsin in Madison, Wisconsin, not because it's a good school, which it is, but because it had like 10,000 Jewish kids or something like that they read in a book. A good pool.
1: A good pool to to choose from.
0: So – when I got there, lo and behold, these other Jewish kids weren't really particularly excited to meet me just because I was Jewish. Where for <laughs> me, that was like if I met another Jewish, like there was one other Jewish girl my age, and she lived in Grand Forks, North Dakota. You know, It was, it was like a big thrill for me to meet someone who kind of had a similar background to mine. Hmm. So um, it w- I remember when I met my, the guy who became my husband, he, he disclosed that he was this, from this suburban area called the Five Towns which is shorthand for a really obnoxious place to have grown up. But it didn't mean anything to me. The only towns I had heard of that were like that were Scarsdale and Great Neck. The reputation of the five towns had never migrated west of the Mississippi. Mm-hmm. So um, I, I – and uh, the first year that I lived in New York, I actually took a course at the new school about the, like the New York Jewish community. And then I decided – I mean, it was just so huge and unwieldy, but my husband and I did join a synagogue eventually, and we did send our kids to a um, a, a Jewish nursery school, Uh, although they both wound up marrying women who aren't Jewish, Mm -hmm. uh, which is not unusual. Um, And it's always been important to me that I'm Jewish. It's always been part of my identity and not my whole identity. And not every, I mean, my, my books sometimes have, Jewish people, and the, that, the new one, the real Mrs. Yes. Tobias, actually does discuss, gets into the whole subject of culture clash because
2: mm-hmm. the
0: youngest Mrs. Tobias is from Iowa, which, in my mind, is a stand-in for North Dakota.
2: Yes. Birdie, and,
0: yeah, Bertie. and she finds some of the personality traits of her mother-in-law and her mother, her husband's grandmother, middle woman's mother-in-law, to be a little bit overbearing and nosy. Which which is not really the style of people in Iowa, or North Dakota, or Minnesota as much mm-hmm. as it might be around, you know, the the, cult, the some Jewish culture in New York. So it becomes a bit of an issue in her marriage.
1: I so there were two two parts themes in the book that I really resonated with. One is Jewish culture and um as you talked about the involvement um, others might say um, boundaries or in our clinical realm, um, tendency for some of these cultures to be enmeshed, these families to be enmeshed with one another. And then, of course, being in the field of psychology, um, very I just loved the, um, the nuances and the, the themes of Veronica, grandma, analyst, psychiatrist, and then Mel, daughter-in-law, first daughter-in-law. Um, who also has a daughter-in-law, Bertie, and she being a licensed clinical social worker and being in her clinical office. And uh, I just loved how those those two things came together and how everyone was trying to manage the degrees of closeness or enmeshment in this multi-generational family.
0: Yeah, well, there's a lot of good material to get into with those, those areas. Um, I wanted, so Veronica is, Someone who I've I've met quite a few Veronicas mm-hmm, in New mm-hmm. York, people who are uh, who have PhDs in psychology or MDs in psychiatry, and also have gone to very esteemed have gotten analytic training, and they're they're this is a whole tribe in New York.
2: Yeah, yeah.
0: But I also know people who are wonderful therapists who have a master's degree in social work. And, in fact, in my own family, I have two nieces who have this degree, and my mother was a social worker briefly. She went mm. to become a mom when she moved to North Dakota. It's another story. But um, I, I I, found the rivalry interesting. There's There can be a snobbishness among mm-hmm. the, the mm-hmm. analytic tribe looking at people who have a mere fun-sized MSW degree, even yes. though some of the MSW – Agree. people are wonderful therapists. Now, um, I wouldn't say that my character Mel is a perfect therapist because she does allow her mind to wander a bit more than it should when she's in therapeutic sessions and she starts thinking, riffing on her own personal problems. Um, But I I have found that very interesting, that whole scenario.
1: I appreciated the... It just... It was an extra dynamic in the mother-in-law, daughter-in-law relationship because then there was the competition or the better than, less than in the career, as well as just being a a wife, um, a family member, a mother, and the competition that went into that relationship right. as well.
0: It, it, this book is a lot about power struggles in families.
1: Mm-hmm. What... What is, what has been the pull for you? I know you write a lot about relationships and this, this, your latest work is very much about the mother-in-law's daughter-in-law's, uh, multi-general relationships and nuances. What, how long has this been brewing for you?
0: Well, about 50 years. Mm -hmm. (laughs) That's how long I've been married. Um, when my husband and I got married, we had starter marriage just tattooed all over the place. We were way too young. We had met in college. We got married about a year out of college. Um, I, I had a bit, a bit of cold feet maybe about six weeks before the wedding and expressed the, my feelings to my father, and my father said to me, Stupidest advice I've ever heard. <laughs> oh, Sally, there's always divorce. <laughs> and I mean, I, I don't think anyone expected our marriage to last. But either because of complete ennui and you know lack inertia, or love,
2: mm-hmm. or
0: both, mm-hmm. it, it has lasted. And uh, uh, so I, I've often thought about how tricky the mother-in-law daughter-in-law relationship is. I've had a mother-in-law longer than. I've had a mother, unfortunately, because my my mother died um, more than twenty years ago, and it it is a complicated relationship. And now I have become a mother-in-law because I have two married sons, and I had a moment when the second the the second one the younger one got married first, um, and the night before he got married, there was, it was in Jackson Hole, Wyoming. It was a lovely destination wedding. And we were having this terrific dinner at the top of a mountain. And I remember thinking, Oh man, time's run out. My job is not done. I don't think I've done enough to turn this child, you know, into a man with all the values I hope that he has and all the wisdom and so on. I'm really screwed. And <laughs> I you know, had this, and plus, you know, I've, I'm going to be mother-in-law and you know, most, most women are programmed to sort of smirk and assume that their mother-in-law is going to be, you know, rhyme with, rhyme with witch. Mm -hmm. So um, that was an interesting observation. And and I, I, I I thought I really would like to write a. I usually do write about relationships, but I thought this is a really interesting relationship to dig into because Mm -hmm. I very few books are written about, the mother-in-law. I mean, I couldn't actually even think of one that's written from the mother-in-law, daughter-in-law perspective, and how challenging and critical and rewarding
1: it mm-hmm. can be. Mm-hmm. And and you described those dynamics well throughout: um, criticalness, uh, judgmentalness, um, of wanting, seeking approval, uh, having courage to stand up and go against the unspoken. Rule and hierarchy.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: How? What has been your experience of being? And I know it's you. You've been a daughter-in-law much longer than you've been a mother-in-law,
0: right? True. Um,
1: what has your been your experience of being on each side?
0: Well, I think in the beginning, when I first married my husband, I kind of wanted to be adopted. <laughs>
2: mm-hmm.
0: <laughs> this, this, my mother. My mother-in-law is this beautiful. My mother-in-law is still around. She's ninety-eight years old. She's still driving. She just leased a beautiful silver Lexus last weekend. I mean, she <laughs> replaced Killer Bridge. Unfortunately, she's outlived um, virtually every friend she has. And so mm-hmm. this is not mm-hmm. a great element of her life right now. She's a little bit lonesome and depressed as a result, unfortunately. I mean, mm-hmm. some of them are still alive, but they don't have it up. To, they're not as sharp as she is. She's very involved. Mm-hmm. With, she's very up-to-date on politics and so on. Um, but... I think I, but she's in a way that the Midwest is different from New York, or maybe it, the Midwest is different from New York Jewish mothers. Mm-hmm. Was, I always felt if I had had like a week as her daughter, maybe I could have become like the president of the United States because I would have grown up with much more self-confidence. I always mm. think that my parents raised children before self-esteem was invented.
1: Yeah, that in wasn't memory. a thing. That wasn't a thing. It wasn't
0: yeah. a thing, self-esteem. Right. And no. um, my father visited New York when my my mother, unfortunately, got Alzheimer's and had to live in an mm. appropriate facility in her later years for people with memory problems. But my father came to New York alone, and it was a holiday. And there was a couple visiting us um, with a beautiful little little girl all decked out with you know really really unusually pretty clothes and everyone was just oohing and owing over this child and and i looked to my dad who's visiting and said well don't you think she's cute and he said well i don't want to say anything she'll get a swelled head <laughs> and i thought hmm, there is my child you're like there it is
1: right there yeah <laughs> so, you know, mission accomplished dad yeah. I don't have a swelled yeah. head I right? never yeah. Got yeah.
0: any comp, you know, any compliments, you know, that I might've been pretty or might've been smart. And, hmm. and I think if I'd lived with my mother-in-law, you know, I, I would have been a different can of worms in terms of, you know, I mean, one of my early, I had once had a very powerful, you know, incredibly brilliant and gorgeous boss. And she said, the only thing wrong with you, Sally, is that you don't have enough self-confidence. If I could only give you a self-confidence translate, But that kind of goes along with being from the upper Midwest. And you're mm-hmm. not supposed to be bragging. And, and I mean, part of actually part bragging about yourself, you're supposed to. there's just not an right. upper Midwest kind of a thing. Um, and I mean, part of being an author right now is it has shifted from the time I had my first book out to what's expected now is that self-promotion is. Yeah. You have to, promote, have, right, to, right. have to promote, right. Right. You have to have a presence on social media.
1: Mm-hmm. And,
0: um, I find it really embarrassing to do, but I have to, it's, it's, it's a different skill set than writing, but it's very much equally important.
1: I relate. I relate to that. You and, um, I, I don't, th- the Midwest mentality that you describe While I understand um, maybe some of the downfall of not getting as much affirmation and learning to have as much maybe I or self in the Mm -hmm. confidence, there's also something really nice and endearing (laughs) about, to me, that way of being.
0: Well, I I feel very warmly toward the Midwest. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to put the Midwest into this book because I feel it isn't, it isn't exposed as much in books mm-hmm. as the South. I mean, the South has a whole literary tradition and lots of books about New York and a lot of books about California, but the Midwest gets kind of becomes sort of the butt of a, you know, a joke about, you know, hamburgers at Denny's or something. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, and it's underappreciated. Mm-hmm. And um, I, I, have gone back to many high school reunions and I just cherish it all. It's, mm-hmm. you know, it was a wonderful, stable place to grow up. Also, I happened to grow up in a place that was, that was primarily uh, peopled by Scandinavia, people who's of Scandinavian descent. And you think about
2: uh-huh.
0: Norway and Sweden. Also like Birdie.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
0: These are, these are, you know, really, really solid places, yeah. you know, with, with intelligence and music and,
1: so i'm 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 having this reflection now on reading the book relating to what you're saying the chapters that take place in new york and the family members which is a large part of the book there's a level of intensity like i was just you know i i, I was really engaged in the, um, in the dialogue, in the dynamics in of course the storyline and, you know, wanting to find out what happens in this and this. And then when we go to the Midwest, when Birdie goes home, I found myself relaxed, much more relaxed when I was reading those chapters that I was wondering is it was was there any intention in that or is that just my experience of these cultures? I think that's
0: just your experience, but I, yeah. I have to say that my favorite parts of the book are the Midwestern parts. Hmm. My favorite character in the whole book is the Midwestern grandmother, you know, mm-hmm. the one who carries jumper cables in her,
2: yeah. in
0: her trunk and, um, wouldn't think of making a dessert that didn't have cool whip in it. And, um, it's just a super sensible, good natured person. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, who, um uh, and, and I love how the, the two grandmothers, the, the two old matriarchs, yes, yes. you know, a pre, respect and appreciate They respected each mother. other, yeah. They, they see a kindred spirit, even if they couldn't be more different. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I also felt that the Midwestern parts showed, like, Birdie went home to the Midwest with her daughter. And her after she was there for a fairly short period of time, the message became very clear. If you're going to stick around, honey, you've got to get a job. Mm -hmm. But no one was going to give her a free ride. And it might be a culture of fewer words, but the values are very strong.
1: Yeah, yeah. What has been your experience of being a mother-in-law?
0: Well, it's hard. It's tricky. You know, my Mm -hmm. daughter-in-laws are very different. One of my daughter-in-laws has become a naturalized citizen, but she's from Germany. Mm -hmm. And um, she's the one who lives in the New York area. Although... She decided that she wanted before her kids got any older to spend a year in Germany. So actually, the whole family's uprooted themselves and they're they're living in Berlin now for a year.
2: Mm, so wow. of
0: course, I miss them terribly, but mm-hmm. I also feel I can't be a pig about it. And her, I right, had the pleasure right. being with her two grand two ch- children who I adore, and now it's her parents' turn.
2: Mm-hmm,
0: um, mm-hmm. My the other family. Um, actually my other daughter-in-law is from Omaha, Nebraska. Oh. So there are certain things that that daughter and I uh, have in common, mm-hmm. which, which, and her, her mother is a woman my age, more or less. And, uh, we have certain things in, in common that I might not have with my other, but I've had to figure out ways to fine tune the relationships with, with, um, both daughter-in-laws and, the daughter-in-law from Nebraska, I think it's fair to say that she's been pretty horrified by how nosy my husband's family is. Mm. But, you know, and it's made, another
1: theme in the book, people yeah. another theme in the book. Okay. Yeah.
0: She's, yeah. she's been a little shocked that, you know, every, but that's kind of, it's a big loving family and yeah. everyone's kind of in everyone else's business. And that's been a bit much for her.
1: Yeah. And it is, I, Um, you know, coming from a large Jewish family, I think this is, you know, not every family's alike, but it's these relationships and the knowing and the, the supporting one another. Um, it's, it's quite normal in many of these families. And yet, even if you're in the family, it can seem intrusive at times. And, but particularly if you were raised in another culture or another type of family, um, and it's not like Jewish people have the uh, corner corner on the market of close and meshed um, no, relationships. I think Italian yeah.
0: families and Irish families can give them a good run.
1: I agree. And it, but it, when you're on the outside of that, and again, in reading the book and reading from Bertie's experience mm-hmm. versus Mel's or even from Mel's, mm-hmm. It's like, wow, this is, is, this seems so out of line. And yet when the family's describing, it's like, this is what families do. This is how we support one another.
0: You said it, Dr. Dan. I mean, you know, I had to get used to it. Mm -hmm. Um, My husband's the youngest uh, child in the family. I had to get used to the fact that when they would like plan an event, no one would consult our calendar. Yeah, it was what worked for my two sisters in law and my mother in law. Oh yeah, and I turned out to be the one who had a huge job, you know, with a lot of responsibilities and not much free time. But that was the way it was.
1: So, what do you, in your experience, like? Okay, maybe your experience and then the experience of other people you know Mm -hmm. might be the same, might be different. What's is there a role that's more challenging in terms of being daughter in law or mother in law? Or are they just different?
0: I think it's harder to be a mother-in-law now that I've been both. Mm-hmm. I mean, mm-hmm. of course <laughs> I say that because why wouldn't my mother-in-law adore me? You know, of course, you know, of course, you know, of yeah. course she's going to love me yeah. and we have gotten much closer over the years. Um, I guess once, once I produced children, mm-hmm. I think my, she, my stock rose, yeah. it turned out pretty well, <laughs> but, um, I think it's really, really hard to be a mother-in-law. It's very, it's a, it's very tricky. You can easily overstep boundaries i've you know i've oh my goodness, I've fed the kids the wrong kind of peanut butter and and on and on and on yeah it's, it's easy to really easy to screw it up
1: well, and how much is you know like you talk about the peanut butter, so my my first thought is oh wow that's 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 punishable by you know that's a crime it's you know like there's things that might not as the in law seem that big. And then it's, it's taken as a big, um, an offensive gesture or statement. And then there are things that in hindsight might really seem like, Whoa, I guess I did cross over there. I didn't, yeah, I, I realized, didn't understand that.
0: Yeah. I realized that I have made mistakes. Um, my mother-in-law <laughs> just reminded me of one over the weekend. We were remembering how when, um, one of the future, one of the brides came to New York and my mother-in-law wanted to take her to a particular store and buy her a pair of earrings that she'd wear at the wedding. And I wanted to be in on the shopping trip because I felt like I was being cheated out of all the fun stuff that went along with planning the wedding. And all I was doing was writing checks. So, you know, I trickled, you know, tagged along and, and, you know, had an opinion about which earring. And my mother-in-law told me over the weekend, Sally, you were really overbearing.
2: Mm.
0: (laughs) i probably Mm. was i'm sure i was but you know i i just wanted to have some fun
1: wait Sally. so that's actually also interesting because sally from the midwest from fargo who's supposed to know her place is, is is uh doesn't always have the confidence that um that someone thinks you should have that person was actually overbearing
0: yeah, was important it, to my mother-in-law was I didn't think I was overbearing. I thought yeah. I was just, you know, had had an opinion, but uh, it wasn't a great moment in shopping. Yeah.
1: yeah, when again, it all comes down to perspectives because when I think of Veronica, everyone again, Veronica, the matriarch, um, survivor of um, family, survivor of the Holocaust from Germany, yeah. um, what she <laughs> feels is offensive from at times from Mel, her daughter-in-law pales in comparison to the stuff that comes out of her mouth and the truths that she has about her role in the family.
0: Right. Well, she sees herself as the head of the family.
1: Yes, clearly. And
0: she's, you know, powers for the grabbing. Yes. uh, Yeah. Grabbed it. She's much more uh, the head of the family than her husband is. He kind of humors her.
1: Yes. Yes. Um, A night they have a night, they uh, compliment each other. Yes, they do.
0: It's a very loving relationship.
1: So knowing that we have uh, mother-in-laws and daughter-in-laws listening to this conversation, what is your wisdom about what makes, I guess, I'm putting this in your quotes, like a good daughter-in-law and a what you're learning to be a good mother-in-law and good isn't the right word but you know like respectful engaged you know what is what are those things
0: oh i think it's important to realize that your daughter-in-law is not a mini me of you and Mm -hmm. to to look for and um praise her strengths Mm -hmm. you know that they may be very different than your own i mean you might be a I'm not saying I am, but you might be a terrific housekeeper who can make a bed like my husband can, which is like a military-style bed where you could bounce quarters off of it. Um, she might not be able to, but she might have many, many other strengths in you that that you haven't noticed or haven't mm-hmm. um, gone to the trouble of noticing.
2: Mm-hmm. And
0: to and and also you have to respect. She might want to be raising her children differently than you raised yours. If there are children, mm-hmm. and uh, you know, not every not every daughter-in-law is a mother, but let's just say there are kids. That you know, you have to you have to really look for the good, and mm-hmm. you also have to realize, and I think this is probably the hardest thing that you're not number one anymore. That mm-hmm. your son should be putting his wife first. You know, I'm not saying my husband's always done that. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> a, my husband is probably the biggest mama's boy you've ever met. But mm-hmm. I, I always like. But I like. I always hope that my my sons notice how respectful he mm-hmm. is to his mother, and maybe I'll get a little bit back of that. A little mm-hmm. bit of that back. But um, yeah, uh, I think it's pretty hard to take a back seat. But that is that really is the role of the mother-in-law you're not number one anymore
1: sad as that may be right and and parenting these days has so much doing involved in it and um thinking about your piece of nonfiction about slouching towards adulthood and reading a little bit about that i think so much of parenting our own kids over time and then as we move into being in-laws and relationships with our kids as adults, a lot of parenting, effective parenting, so to speak, is not doing, is is consciously and purposefully not doing something to allow our emerging or adults to live their lives without our interference.
0: Really hard. Yeah. And of course, parents would be, since I was a child and certainly even since I raised children, parents have become much more of the helicopter variety of really Mm -hmm. trying to smooth the way for their
2: children. Mm -hmm. And
0: it isn't always helpful. It doesn't always, I mean, that, that was a big part of the book, slouching toward adulthood, how it isn't always about, you know, it is, it isn't always about making things easy for your kids.
1: No, no. And that, uh, While we all do not want our kids to suffer, um, we are learning more and more over time with research and experience, um, regardless of how crazy our world gets, that if we rob our kids of the ability to experience disappointment, learn resilience, learn how to problem solve, sit in discomfort, um, we are doing them a disservice for their um, emergence into adulthood and beyond. There you go. Was that the was that the, the basically the thesis of uh, slouching to adulthood?
0: <laughs> well, slouching to adulthood was written about twelve years ago, and mm-hmm. um, at the time I wrote it, it was it was pretty hard for people to get a job. Now, mm-hmm. of course, we it's a different economy, and there, if you're looking for low level jobs, there are plenty of jobs that are available mm-hmm. in the United States. Um, but it was it was in a way that uh, it was a pre- precursor that book to what now we sort of take for granted is what happens when people graduate from college, they they basically go home and hang right. out in their, in their parents' basements or in their old bedrooms because they don't have enough money and so on to um, get a everything is so different now also because of yeah. remote employment. Mm-hmm. Um, but there were certain truths in that book that, that, were very interesting to explore and observe. Um, and things, you know, things were radically different when that era, when we graduated college. I mean, when I graduated from college, it was possible to support yourself on, um, the salary that you, right. you, you you were offered now, Sometimes it is. I mean, I hear of kids getting jobs, you know, for eighty, ninety thousand dollars a year, they're doing just fine, but not everybody can find right. those jobs. It depends on right. you know what what if how practical probably you are when you go to college. And well,
1: yeah, and that and the road to adulthood for those reasons, um and others has just as a whole seems to have gotten longer. You know, we are long oh, definitely. past definitely. eighteen and you're out. Um yeah.
0: I mean, my parents considered me a grown-up. Huh. Mm-hmm. You know, when, <laughs> and um, in some respects, I was pretty good at imitating a grown-up.
2: Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm.
0: Um, you know, because I got, got married and my and I had an apartment and it all looked very nice. But
2: um, yes.
0: I mean, my my oldest son didn't get married till he was thirty-five years old, mm-hmm. and my um, youngest son he seemed way too young to get married, but he was like twenty-nine, way older <laughs> than my husband. 29.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah.
0: Um, you know, it's people, well, also, I mean, now women are realized that they can freeze their eggs,
2: mm-hmm. but mm-hmm.
0: I, I did a chapter on that.
1: Yes, there um, is an and, element of this in the book. Yeah,
0: yes. And um, it, it doesn't always work out to freeze your egg. Mm-hmm. You know, you can see examples around you of women well into their forties who have a first child, but usually doesn't work out that way without a lot of intervention and sometimes Mm -hmm. disappointment and unhappiness and great financial investment.
1: What are you hoping people take away from the real Mrs. Tobias?
0: First and foremost, I write to give people enjoyment.
2: Mm
0: -hmm. Um, It makes me happy when people say that there are witty things in the book because I like to make people laugh. And, but I hope that it helps I hope it's a source of reflection for people,
2: mm-hmm. and
0: makes people think about their own role as either a mother-in-law or, or a daughter-in-law, or wife, mm-hmm. um, or a partner. Do you want mm-hmm. to be legally married to to have these relationships? So, um, and there's some parts that are a bit touching. It's not all big ha 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 fest. You know, we get into some sadness in the book too. Mm-hmm. So yeah. I, 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 but it's the reflection
2: mm.
0: as well as the entertainment that I hope is what people experience when they close it up.
1: I was entertained and I took it to bed in my mind, which is what I do when I get really into books and the mm-hmm. characters. And even though I am not a daughter-in-law or a mother-in-law, not only did it make me think about those people in my life, Uh, the mother-in-laws and daughter-in-laws, uh, but also my own, my own life as, uh, as a son, as a son-in-law, because relationships, like there's many relationships in this book that allow one to reflect upon.
0: Yes. I also hope, I hope some book clubs discover this book because Mm -hmm. I think it could make, I think it, it sets a foundation of really good book club conversation because people could talk about their own experiences in these roles.
1: Absolutely. You hear that, Parent Footprint community? <laughs> this is the next book club reading.
0: The Real Mrs. Tobias.
1: The He's Real Mrs. Tobias. Mm-hmm. Yes, and this this is coming out um, just as um, the show is being released. So this <laughs> is it's hot off the press.
0: Great.
1: Okay, it's time for the Parent Footprint Moment question, Sally. Here we go. Okay. Tell us about a time that you became aware of yourself as an individual, as a parent, or even an awareness of your own parents. And this new awareness created a positive impact on your life, your kids, and or those you love.
0: I've got to say it's the moment when my oldest son told me that he and his wife were going to have a baby. So it... 11 years ago in July, his younger brother got married. I mentioned that earlier that he had a beautiful wedding in Jackson, Wyoming. And not surprisingly, especially because maybe half the guests said, Jed, when are you and Anna getting married? Um, he, he came home and decided to ask his wife to marry him. I really don't know what the conversation was, but they just, they they decided to get married. And, um, uh and in the fall of that year, so this is like two months later, we were walking to services for Yom Kippur
2: mm-hmm.
0: and Jed and Anna told us, told us my husband, my husband's name Rob, told us that they were going to have a baby, and I was just dumbstruck because unlike some of my friends. I'd never thought about being a grandmother. It just, you know, (laughs) suddenly both kids were getting married. I mean, they Mm -hmm. got, you know, everything was just changing so fast. And at their wedding, which was in December, so by then Anna was about four months pregnant, didn't look pregnant at all. At their lovely, lovely wedding, which was in Brooklyn where they live, they announced to the Pop to the guests that they were expecting that they were starting their family. Hmm. And I, I continued to be shocked and I, I cannot believe how incredible the experience of being a grandmother has been. So Hmm. their, their oldest child is the most remarkable kid. I just adore this boy. He's very smart and he's very intellectually curious. He's very funny and, um, but it was that moment when I found out that I was going to become a grandmother that it all kind of, kind of clicked for me that, um, everything was moving and changing in my family. Mm-hmm. And, um, I've often thought of my own mother in grandparent moments mm-hmm. and, uh, appreciated her more. And, um, I, i subsequently have three other grandchildren Mm-hmm. at four total it mm-hmm. it um it 's that feeling of life going on, and um I also feel very very lucky because i didn 't stay home with my two boys I was busy busy working person and and uh, i' have been very grateful for the experience of being able to be a grandmother and the Brooklyn kids have allowed you know i i always had took care of the kids one day a week
2: mm-hmm.
0: and uh it 's been good times. So yay kids.
1: Yay kids. And grandparents are so important. It just allows for a whole nother relationship. Um,
0: it's wonderful. That's just so special. I, I didn't, wasn't raised close to my grandparents. I had one grandmother in St. Paul, Minnesota, but I didn't see her more than maybe once a year. And I had some grandparents in New York who I, you know, I'm not even sure, you know, they knew my name, but, um, I they weren't part of my life at all. So I'm, my husband and I have tried to be the kind of grandparents who enrich a child's life. And we love it when they sleep over and,
2: mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. we make
0: breakfast and we have certain rituals. It's just great.
1: It's wonderful. Sally, tell everyone where they can find your multiple books, your, uh, your events, your engagements, and everything you're up to.
0: Okay. Well, um, I have a website. So it's wwwsallycoslo.com which is Sally, S-A-L-L-Y, Coslow spelled K-O-S-L-O-W. As far as my books, any bookstore that you prefer, your independent bookstore would be happy to order these books for you, but they're also available on Barnes Noble's website or Amazon's website. Um. This mm-hmm. book is my first book that's being published as a trade paperback, which mm. is a trend in the United States. So I'm glad for that because it's not quite as expensive, mm-hmm. and it makes it more reasonable for book clubs to buy. But it's also being released in e-reader form as well as um, audio. I just love audio books myself. I am always having going me on, too. You know, for my walks and cooking yes. and so on. So there there's a big variety of forms in which this book can be purchased.
1: Multiple ways to get the books, uh, multiple modalities and all can be used for your next book club people. So go out and get the real Mrs. Tobias. Sally, thanks so much.
0: Thank you, Dan. Love talking to you.
1: Great conversation. You guys, this book, the relationships, they will be in your head too. (laughs) You will be thinking about all of the characters and we only named a few of the characters. There's many more and there's actually men in there too. That play, they play very.
0: They, they take yes. second stage.
1: Yes, but wonderful characters um, and great relationships, complex relationships. Thank you, Dan. Thanks for listening, everyone. Thank you for your five-star reviews. Thank you for sharing this episode with everyone you think will benefit. And we love having you part of our community. Do your best to be that person you want your child to become and ask yourself the guiding question I ask myself each day what footprint do you want to leave this has been a Peters and Rossi production Parent Footprint with Dr. Dan is produced by Laura Rossi our engineer is Phil Rossi Theme music is Strummer Man, composed and performed by ProTunes. Artwork is by Garrett Ross. Follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Parent Footprint Podcast and on Twitter at Dr. Dan Peters. For more information, go to exactlyrightmedia.com. Follow Parent Footprint with Dr. Dan on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen so you don't miss an episode. If you like what you hear... Rate and review the show.